Hello, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast, Episode 3, Horus vs. Seth. Today, we explore the second phase of our royal history. It is a time of confusion when the young kingdom of Egypt, going so well, may have suddenly collapsed. Amidst the chaos of a shadowy history, two great gods rose to power and challenged each other for the throne. Long, long ago, in the millennia before humans rose to rule the earth, power was given to the great gods to decide our fate and to rule Egypt for eternity. Great beings like the creator, Atum, Ra, the sun god, and Osiris, the lord of agriculture, governed the world of humans and animals. Their rule was good, the very definition of justice and order. When gods spoke, their words were always true. The greatest ruler of all was Osiris. Osiris, or Usuru the Mighty One, was the Lord of Eternity, a king of gods. He was holy of forms and numerous of names. Osiris ruled Egypt with wisdom and justice. He was the definition of a good king. Osiris had a brother, Sutek. He also had two sisters, Iset and Nebethut. These four siblings were the masters of the earth, given power by their divine parents. Osiris and Iset, or Isis, were a couple. Sutek and Nebethut, or Seth and Nephthys, were another. Between them, the majesty of worldly power was shared. Osiris ruled over humanity, and he ensured that Egypt flourished. Farmers looked to him to make their crops grow, and Osiris helped the annual flood to rise and nourish the crops. Over time, the cult of Osiris replaced that of many other gods, and he became the master of a whole range of powers. Osiris's brother, Seth, or Sutek, desired this power for himself. Sutek was lord of the desert and master of storms. The wind swirled at his command and kicked up mighty sandstorms that buried settlements and destroyed crops. A master of confusion, Sutek caused great anxiety and uncertainty for humans living beneath his power. Sutek was synonymous with concepts like turmoil, storms, and rage. His hieroglyph appears in those words. The story goes that Sutek, Seth, envied the rule of Osiris and wanted it for himself. He played a trick on his brother, locking him into a chest and throwing it into the sea. In some versions, Sutek cut Osiris into many pieces and tossed them into the Nile River. When he did this, Sutek upended the natural order of the world. Osiris was dead, and uncertainty reigned over the land. For gods and humans, such disrespect, such chaos was horrendous. Without a good ruler, disorder would flourish, the land would be plunged into darkness. Without a leader, the gods met in council to decide who should be the new king. Sutek put himself forward, claiming the throne by right of seniority. He was Osiris's brother, after all. Power should go to him. But things were not so simple. Osiris had a son, a child born after his father's death, and capable of taking power as a new ruler of Egypt. This son 
was Horus. Horus, or Heru, the one who is aloft, came forth to challenge Sutek for the throne. They each put forward their claim, and, in the literature of the pharaohs, we have a wonderful story of what happened next. Quote, This is the judging of Horus and Seth, they of mysterious forms, the mightiest of princes and lords. The divine youth, Horus, was seated before the Creator, claiming the office of his father Osiris, the king who brightens the underworld with his shine. But Seth, the great of strength, said, I am Seth, greatest of strength among the gods. I slay the enemy of Ra every day, and no other god can do it. I should receive the office of Osiris. Horus replied to this, saying, It is not good to defraud me in front of the gods, to take the office of my father Osiris away from me. End quote. Horus and Sutek, whom I'll refer to as Seth from here on out, both had strong claims. Seth was a mighty being who had accomplished much in the service of the gods. Surely he had proved his worth and deserved the throne. But Horus was the son, and by the order of descent, his claim should be stronger. Uncle and nephew were going head to head, each claiming their right to the throne of Egypt. It is a classic dilemma, like Hamlet or the Lion King. The only question was, who had the stronger claim? The other gods were unable to decide, and there were many arguments back and forth. Finally, Seth got fed up and challenged Horus directly. If they both sought the throne, they should have a contest. Let the best god win the crown of Egypt. Round one was a trial of endurance. The two gods, capable of shape-shifting, transformed themselves into hippopotami and submerged within the waters of the Nile River. They held their breath. Whoever could stay under the longest would win the contest and earn the kingship for themselves. The two gods went down into the water and waited. On the riverbank, a goddess was watching. The mother of Horus, sister of Seth, great Iset, or Isis, was concerned at what would happen. Isis was in mourning for her husband, and her fears naturally rose at the thought that Seth, treacherous as he was, might hurt her only son Horus. Isis grew anxious, and decided to act. Isis took a branch and fashioned it into a magical harpoon. She threw the harpoon at Seth, hoping to injure her brother so that he would have to come out of the water and lose the competition. But Isis misjudged her aim, and the harpoon bit deep into the body of Horus instead. Rearing up, Horus the hippopotamus was enraged. The first contest was over, and Seth had won. Horus went away in a huff, and Seth followed him. The uncle pursued his nephew, and found him lying on a mountain. When Seth came upon Horus, lying beneath a tree, he attacked him, hoping to secure his victory once and for all. The next part was quite horrific. Quote, Horus was lying under a tree in the oasis country. Then Seth found him, seized him, and threw him on his back on the mountain. Seth removed Horus's eyes from their sockets and buried them on this mountain. Then he went to the creator and said falsely, I searched for Horus, but I did not find him. 
Horus's two eyeballs became two bulbs, and towards morning, they grew into lotus flowers. End quote. Seth blinded Horus, tearing his eyes out and burying them. There they transformed into lotus flowers, symbols of rebirth, and they grew on the banks of the oasis. A very pretty scene, but not so good for the god. Horus, lacking eyes, was in trouble. Fortunately, a goddess came along to rescue Horus. Her name was Hathor, or Hathor, one of the most important goddesses, and with her great powers, she was able to heal the wounded Horus. Hathor poured animal milk into Horus's eye sockets, and with her magic, she made new eyes for him. These new eyes were called the Wadjet Eyes, and they became a famous symbol of protection. The Eye of Horus, mighty in its power, was a great emblem. It was associated with immense creative and regenerative power, and it was even said that the Eye of Horus was actually the left eye of the Creator himself. I won't go into all of that complicated mythology here. Suffice to say, the Eye of Horus came about at a time of great need, and it served him well. Today, the Eye of Horus is synonymous with Egyptian divinity. It is also the symbol for this podcast. The next competition got intensely sexual, so if you have younger listeners or you're not interested in that kind of material, skip ahead about four minutes. After the contest of the hippos and the blinding of Horus, the third competition took place in the bedroom. The story goes that Seth invited Horus to a banquet and tried to seduce him. Horus pretended to acquiesce, and the two went to bed together, whereupon Seth, quote, let his member become stiff, and he inserted it between the thighs of Horus, end quote. Graphic stuff, but this is the ancient world. Sexuality was much more free. What's important here is who was doing the inserting. Seth was the top, which in ancient morality meant that he was the man. This contest was a challenge of masculinity. Seth tried to treat Horus as a woman, to feminize him, in order to prove that the younger god was unfit to rule Egypt. In a patriarchal society, this made perfect sense. Unfortunately, Horus outsmarted him. Horus tricked Seth and fooled him into thinking that he had succeeded when he hadn't. Horus captured Seth's bodily fluid and he took it to his mother, Isis. Isis was horrified, and the two concocted a plan to get revenge on Seth. Horus threw Seth's semen away into the marshes, and gathered his own semen into a pot. They then took Horus's semen to the garden which belonged to Seth. There, they found a number of lettuces growing, and Horus placed his own semen on the lettuce in order that Seth would eat it. It seems that Seth was quite fond of salad, for indeed, he did eat the lettuce which contained Horus's fluid. As a result, Seth became pregnant with the semen of Horus. Horus had got a one-up on his wicked uncle, and as you can imagine, Seth was rather enraged. The furious Seth now turned to the last resort of any unreasonable party. He said to Horus, Come on, we're taking this to court. So, the gods went before the Divine Council, and sat once again in holy judgment. At this point, Seth's attempt to dominate Horus sexually came back to bite him. Seth claimed that he had, quote, done a man's deed to Horus, 
In other words, Seth claimed victory by right of sexual dominance. It is a strange way to take power over a kingdom, but there it is. Unfortunately for Seth, Horus and Isis's clever thinking had sowed the seeds for his downfall. At this point, Seth claimed victory, but Horus shot back, saying, If you did what you say you did, make your semen announce itself. Seth called out to his semen, expecting it to answer from Horus's buttocks. But it answered from a faraway marsh. Then Horus called out to his semen, and it answered from the stomach of Seth. The contest was clear. Horus had dominated Seth sexually, not the other way around. The crowd roared with laughter, and the divine council said, Horus is true, Seth is false. I emphasize this sexual contest for an important reason, to start getting a sense of some of the ancient Egyptians' morals and sexual customs. In their mindscape, it wasn't important who the players were, male or female, hetero or homosexual. What was important was which role each partner took. The dominant one was clearly the masculine for them, the submissive one was the feminine. Since their society was inherently patriarchal, particularly in politics, they prized the masculine traits as more suitable, quote-unquote, for their rulers. That could be played out sexually as much as politically. The story progressed through a couple more phases and competitions, which I will explore at another time. In the last phase, the contest reached its worst anger, and the Divine Council came to its last resort. Unable to choose between the brother of Osiris, Seth, and the son, Horus, they decided that the only thing to do was to ask Osiris himself. Now Osiris was dead, of course, but that was no barrier for the gods. They simply wrote a letter to the king, who now lived within the underworld, and asked him his opinion. Who should have the throne, his brother or his son? Osiris responded as you would expect. He said, Are you mad? Give the throne to my son! So that was that. The decision of Osiris could not be challenged, and the gods settled the matter accordingly. They gave the crown to Horus. Quote, After all of this had transpired, the creator said, Bring me Seth, bound up and tied. So Seth was brought, bound as a prisoner, and the god said to him, Seth, why have you resisted being judged, and tried to seize for yourself the office that belongs to Horus? Seth sneakily said, I have done no such thing, my good lord. Let Horus be summoned, and I will give to him the office of his father Osiris. Then Horus received the crown on his head, the gods placed him on the seat of his father, and they said to him, You are the good god of Egypt, you are the good lord of all lands, for ever and ever. Horus was crowned king, and the land came to peace. The tale ends with a celebration of Horus as the king, and a consolation prize for Seth. Seth, defeated, was given a new job, to become the Lord of Storms, where he, quote, shall thunder in the sky and be feared. Seth accepted this, and the tale ended happily. The text closes by saying, it has come to a good ending in the place of truth. The story of Horus and Seth has a lot more in it than I've been able to describe. 
For one thing, it's incredibly long, so I've cut out a lot of content. There is a lot of political stuff going on in the background, a couple of humorous interludes, and a lot of explanations for how the gods lived and organised their own society. That is all excellent material, but it's not particularly relevant right now. So I'm going to revisit this story in a future episode, when we reach the historical phase in which the tale was written and copied onto papyrus, around 1300 BCE. That's a ways away, but it will be good. The Battle of Horus and Seth is a myth, but it may have a historical component. You see, the great contest of these gods might be connected with upheavals that gripped Egypt during the second phase of its royal history. In the second half of this episode, we will explore the shadowy second dynasty of rulers, and see how small traces of this time period might have inspired one of Egypt's greatest tales. Was the Sphinx 10,000 years old? Were there serial killers in ancient Greece and Rome? What were the lives of transgender, intersex, and non-binary people like in the ancient world? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. We tell you true stories and tall tales of the ancient world. Sometimes we do it tipsy. Sometimes we have amazing guests on our show. Historians like Barry Strauss, podcasters like Liv Albert, Mike Duncan, and authors like Joanne Harris and Ben Aronovich. We take you to the top of Hadrian's Wall to watch the Roman Empire fall at the end of the world. We walk the catacombs beneath the Temple of the Feathered Serpent under Teotihuacan. We walk the sacred spirals of the Nazca Lines in search of ancient secrets. And we explore mythology from ancient cultures around the world. Come find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The year was 2850 BCE. The Kingdom of Egypt was in transition, as one period was ending and another was on the horizon. The first dynasty of kings was coming to its end. There had been ten rulers approximately, over nearly 200 years. These monarchs, the Horus kings, had led the country well, and their reigns saw great achievements in tomb-building, government organisation, and religious worship. From the shrines of the gods, to the great royal tombs, and the sophisticated government bureaucracy, the rulers of Dynasty I were accomplishing important things for the state. Over the course of episode 1 and 2, we saw how great rulers like Namer, Aha, Mernith, and Den shaped their kingdom. They were accomplished and effective, and their effectiveness was possible because Egypt was experiencing general prosperity across the board. The population was growing, the farms were producing enough food, and there were plentiful resources to fund different projects. Projects like trading, mining, and expeditions to foreign lands. In a time of plenty, the monarchs of the first dynasty led the country to splendour. Dynasty II began around 2850 BCE, and it seems to have been a lot less successful. 
prosperity was lower, stability was in short supply, and the archaeological record hints at a time of great uncertainty for the young kingdom. In this second chapter, we'll look at that historical process, and how it might have inspired the great myth of Horus and Seth. Before we begin, let's get a handle on what Egyptologists mean when they say dynasties. The royal history of Egypt is divided up into about 30 periods or dynasties, each one corresponding to a particular era of political or cultural significance. Some of these dynasties are quite distinct from one another, others are more arbitrary. Overall, dynasties are the primary method of dividing Egyptian history into small, manageable chunks. The problem is, this isn't how the Egyptians themselves would have seen it. The dynasty system was put in place by Greek writers, and doesn't reflect what we know from the pharaohs themselves. Ancient Egyptians described their royal history as one long lineage. This was a line of kings started by the gods, inherited by humans, and then passed down in a mostly unbroken succession. They recognised changes in policies or trends, but overall depicted the royal household as an enduring, stable line. So the way we describe dynasties is different from how the Egyptians saw it. We use the dynasties mainly because it's convenient, and because centuries of habit have kind of stuck. Historians adopt new methods slowly, and Egyptology is no different. So with that in mind, I'll keep using the dynasty system. Just remember, the Egyptians themselves saw it differently. Anyway, we're beginning Dynasty 2, and compared to what came before, this second phase of kings is much more shadowy than the first. Dynasty II began around 2850 BCE, and would last about 150 years, and in that time there were at least 10 different rulers. 10 kings coming and going at a rate of 1 every 10 to 15 years. Quite possibly, there were even more of them, but the archaeological and written material is way too vague to give us any certainty. Essentially, this seems to have been a difficult time for the crown of Egypt. The trouble began with the Nile River, and the annual flood or inundation that was supposed to refresh the soil and fertility of the land. Well, around this time, the Nile floods diminished, and Egypt experienced a long period of drought. Water tables were lower, the farms did not get fertilised, and on both sides of the river, the narrow strip of fertile soil, or Kemet, the black land, retracted. To the ancients, it must have seemed as if the river was shrinking, and the desert was attacking. As the inundation got worse and worse, farms began to produce less food. Year in, year out, the soil was less fertile, and pretty soon, famine may have struck the land. Now, we're not sure how big the population was at the time, but maybe half a million people or so. That population was in trouble, and as the people began to suffer, their rulers suffered as well. The second dynasty seems to be a story of how the Horus kings, at first so successful, suddenly began to lose power. In the face of environmental decay, they had fewer resources to support their authority. Pretty soon, the state was fading away, and what came next was a time of political division. There may even have been a civil war. 
Sometime during the Second Dynasty, we're not sure when exactly, the Horus kings seem to have lost control of their state. Either their power retracted or communities rebelled and broke away. Whatever caused it, there was upheaval and possibly some conflict. Ten rulers came and went with little fanfare. Some of them are just names on a list with no remains to prove their deeds. For about a hundred years after the Horus King Den, there was one ruler after another who left little mark on history. Then there came two men of note. The first was named Per Ibsen. Per Ibsen, or House of Our Heart, is a curious figure. He didn't leave much, but what survives tells us that he made some very curious decisions. The most important of these is how Peribsen named himself. The Horus kings had always depicted their names with the symbol of the falcon, the great god Horus, lord of the sky. That was their emblem, and it represented their royal power. Peribsen did not use Horus. When Peribsen came to power, he chose to write his name with the symbol of a different god. This was a god who was a lot less admirable than Horus, and a lot more frustrating. This was the god Seth. Seth, or Sutek, was a troublesome deity. He ruled the Sahara, where his power created sandstorms, and constantly threatened the fertility of the Nile Valley. The red land, Desheret, was the dominion of Seth, and in the Second Dynasty, that dominion was growing. As the Nile floods diminished, the desert expanded. To the Egyptians, this may have seemed as though Seth, lord of the sands, was growing in power. Out there in the desert, the mischievous god was whipping up storms, creating difficulty for the farmers of the Nile Valley. If this was the case, it might explain Peribsen's strange choice. It's possible that Peribsen came along as the droughts were reaching their worst phase. With an ecological and economic disaster falling over the land, the king may have chosen to worship Seth as a way of ending the crisis. If Seth was the master of the desert, and the desert was expanding, then surely the god needed proper satisfaction in order to return things to the way they had been. Right? Peribsen chose to represent his name with the hieroglyph for Seth. This is a strange glyph, kind of a hybrid animal that doesn't really make sense. The Seth animal is weird. It has a forked tail, oddly shaped ears, and a long snout. It might be a combination of animals, or it may be intentionally fake, a picture designed to not look like any animal in particular. Seth, the shapeshifter, is a strange god to look at. For some reason, Peribsen felt more affinity with Seth than he did with Horus. He chose to abandon the Horus lineage and use his own. Why? Once upon a time, Egyptologists assumed that Peribsen, with his strange Seth animal, was some kind of usurper, a rebel who seized power for himself. Well, that's actually kind of speculative, really. We have no evidence for that situation. What we do know is that Egypt was suffering, and that the encroaching desert was the dominion of great Seth. With that in mind, it's possible that Peribsen was simply trying to placate the god, and bring an end to the desert's expansion. Using Seth's emblem might have been a way to assuage the great enemy. If so, it doesn't seem to have worked. We're in a difficult place here, both historically and in the story. Peribsen is an enigma, 
We have lots of ideas, but very few facts. So we find ourselves in a hole, and when you're in a hole, the only way out is to dig some more. Whatever was going on with Peribsen, it was a strange situation, and probably a difficult time for the people of Egypt. With the Nile floods at an all-time low, farming was in dire straits, and people were suffering the effects of hunger. That hunger led to desperation, and in the last phase of this dynasty, there seems to have been a great conflict. The last king of the second dynasty, and perhaps the answer to our problems, was a man named Ka Sekem. Ka Sekem, or the powerful one appears, rose to power around the same time as Paribsen, maybe just after. The reason Ka Sekem is so interesting is that he chose to decorate his name with the god that Paribsen had ignored. Ka Sekem went back to worshipping Horus. It seems as though Kasakim came to power in the southern half of the land. Artifacts with his name are almost all from that region, and the only surviving image of him, a statue, shows him wearing the white crown of Upper Egypt. So maybe Kasakim arose in the south at first. At some point, he began to move north. Kasakim was another of these warrior kings. On one artifact, the king left a record of, quote, fighting the northern enemy. On other pieces, he makes references to rebels, rebels who get crushed underfoot. Putting two and two together, it seems like the king was a southerner who invaded the north and took control. Was this a civil war on some grand scale? We don't know. All we can say is that somewhere around 2720 BCE, the Horus king Kasakim led warriors against rebels or enemies in the north. He defeated these opponents and expanded his royal power. Kasakim was eventually in charge of the whole country. When this happened, he made some fascinating decisions. After his victory, Kasakim made a curious choice. He decided to rebrand himself and change his official name. The new king of Egypt altered his royal name from Kasakim to Kasakim We. This was an important change. Before, his name had meant the powerful one appears. Now, it meant the two powers appear. What does that mean exactly? Well, it all goes back to those gods that we've been talking about, Horus and Seth. Peribsen chose to use Seth as his emblem, Kasakim chose Horus. But now that he was called Kasakim We, the new king began to use images of both gods on his symbols. On top of Kasakemwi's name, we see the falcon of Horus and the strange animal of Seth sitting side by side. They face one another atop his name and appear to be reconciled in glory. What's going on here? Kasakemwi's choices are fascinating and might reveal a lot about the politics of this time. Perhaps the kingdom had broken apart and required force to be reunified, or perhaps there was warfare on the fringes, the borders of the state that needed to be stamped out. Perhaps the economic situation had led to population movements, migrations or displacement that upset the normal order. Whatever it was, Kasa Kemwi seems to have stamped it out. When he was done, he commemorated his victory by reconciling the two warring gods. Horus and Seth. The truth of this time period may be forever lost. 
Although I've presented a rather straightforward narrative, a tale of dissolution, conflict, and reunification, the truth is that we really don't know for certain what was happening. The traditional view is that a civil war might have occurred, and we can certainly tell that economic prosperity took a hit. Not only do we have the measurements of the Nile flood to tell us, but we also have far less archaeological material in Second Dynasty sites. Putting these two together, we can make an educated guess that times were not so good. But did Kasakemwe really have to fight a civil war, or did he simply stamp out some minor rebellions? Was Peribsen a usurper, a traitor, or was he simply a king who chose a different symbol for some now-forgotten reason? We do not know, and as much as we may like the idea of a nice, tidy civil war, the truth is far more elusive. Naturally, the two kings using different symbols, symbols of Horus and Seth, begs the question. Did conflict in the Second Dynasty inspire the great myth of warring gods? It's certainly possible. A civil war between two kings might have made for good storytelling, and that story might have grown over time. Eventually, the tale of kings may have become a tale of gods. We may never know the full story of this dark time. The Second Dynasty is still mysterious, and records are too fragmentary to say anything with confidence. Still, at least one thing is relatively clear. As Dynasty Two came to its end, the land of Egypt was in need of healing. A crack had formed in the state, and the people were suffering. That crack would take decades to fix. We now come to the end of this episode. Next time we begin the first of Egypt's three Golden Ages. This is the time known as the Old Kingdom, which lasted from 2700 to 2200 BCE. In this period, great kings would reign, and they would build monuments the likes of which the world had never seen. Starting in episode 4, we are embarking on a journey through the famous Pyramid Age. It is an amazing time. One more thing, stick around after the ad break for an epilogue. The first dynasty kings went to their graves surrounded by human sacrifices. The second dynasty rulers had a new method. In their time, people were starting to figure out the process of embalming. In this epilogue, we'll explore the earliest evidence for mummification in Egypt. For many centuries, perhaps millennia, Egyptians had been burying their dead in the desert sands. That sand dried out the body, and helped to preserve the form of the individual. But over time, the Egyptians started to figure out how to do this artificially. Along the way, they figured out the process of mummification. During the first dynasty, mummification was rudimentary at best. A king was wrapped in linen, perhaps covered with oily resin, and laid to rest. His internal organs were left in the body, and the king rested on a simple bed in the tomb chamber. This was certainly ornate, but not really adequate. As the body decayed, the moisture in the organs and skin would quickly destroy its form, reducing the corpse to a mere shell. Those first dynasty tombs have never preserved a complete mummy, and the only trace was one skeletal arm, still wrapped in linen, discovered in the tomb of King Den. 
So the Egyptian mummy as we know it, the carefully treated, dried and wrapped corpse, was not yet a thing. Where did it come from? At some point, the first embalmers realised that in order to preserve the body as effectively as the desert sand did, it was necessary to replicate the environment of that desert. The earliest embalmers turned to a kind of salt, a salt that we know as natron. Natron salt, sodium carbonate decahydrate, occurs when salt water lakes dry up, leaving behind the mineral salt. In Egypt's western reaches, that salt is abundant, and it wasn't long before they noticed that such salt was ideal for preservation. Starting in the second dynasty, Egyptian embalmers began to use natron for drying out the bodies of the dead. Egyptians called natron necheri, which is where we get the Latin natrium and the chemical symbol Na, or sodium. In other words, Egyptian natron, necheri, is the original salt. From this humble mineral, they would figure out the amazing art of mummification. The early use of natron was simple. They laid the body on a bed or on the ground, and covered it with a pile of the white mineral. The organs and body parts remained inside. They hadn't figured out this part just yet. When the body was fully covered, they left it for several weeks, until all the moisture was drained away and the skin was dried to perfection. The body was now effectively preserved as if it had been in the sand. With the Netjeri natron part done, the embalmers then coated the deceased in resin for protection and wrapped the body in linen. Each limb was wrapped separately, making the bodies look more like a child's Halloween costume than the sophisticated works of later centuries. But hey, it did the trick. With the wrapping done, an early mummy was ready. Examples of these bodies have turned up in some of the Second Dynasty tombs, mostly those of the nobility in different cemeteries. We still do not have a verified mummy for a king or queen at this point. In fact, It'll be another 400 years before the mummy of a pharaoh can be confidently identified within its tomb. So for now, we are still dealing with fragmentary and elusive records. The very first mummies were simple bodies in the sand. The next attempts were a bit more sophisticated. The Egyptians were beginning to figure out the process of mummification. All they needed was a bit of ingenuity and some help from Mother Nature. It was a promising start to an enduring craft. Thank you for listening to the History of Egypt podcast. If you are enjoying the story, consider reviewing it on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. The gods live on worship, the pharaohs live on bread and beer, Podcasts live on reviews. Every rating helps the show gain visibility and helps me bring the story of Egypt to more people. Good? Bad? I would love to hear from you. Of course, if you have any criticisms, questions or comments, please get in touch via email. Maybe I can help. You can reach me via egyptpodcast at gmail.com. That's egyptpodcast at gmail.com. Please get in touch. Now then, On to episode 4. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Mm